The terrible pealing of sirens, the likes of which countless numbers of Vietnamese people heard during the crises there in the 1960s and 70s. It's part of an ambitious radio work called Silent Forest, put together by an artist sensitive not only to the plight of the world's downtrodden, but also more generally to the physical environment to which we are so often immune. Once again, I'm Julian Day. Welcome to New Music Up Late here on ABC Classic FM. Hope your night's going well. One thing that many musicians talk about in relation to their work is the role of space, in particular good-sounding space, acoustically speaking. What classical violinist, for instance, would choose to play in their kitchen if a concert hall was equally available? For our guest tonight, space is indeed important, and incredibly so – not just as an aesthetic preference, however, but as a crucial building block of his practice. Dr Nigel Hallier is an esteemed sound artist, sound designer, sound sculptor and installation artist. Born in the UK, he moved to Sydney some years ago and has built up an impressive career exploring the terrestrial world around us. Nigel describes himself as an audio nomad, and much of his work takes place in specific geographic places, drawing upon their architectural, social, historic and, of course, acoustic properties. As such, he's found himself in an intriguingly wide range of situations, from subway systems and ocean liners to factory floors and maritime museums, everywhere from Scandinavia through to Central America. His deep concern for political and social justice has also led to works that strongly question authority or remind us of past injustices that may have been forgotten. That's not to say, however, that his work lacks a sense of humour. His one-time attempt to copyright all of Australia's phone numbers is the closest the sound art scene has had to a chaser-style prank, just don't mention the numerous death threats. Nigel joins me in the studio tonight to talk about his diverse interests and to share with us music by some of the artists who have inspired him. Thanks to the Australia Council, Nigel has just finished a six-month residency with us here at ABC Radio, and before we meet him, we're going to hear just some of what he's been up to. This is part of Ghost Trains, in which Nigel took to a giant converted railway shed in inner-city Sydney. There was a lot of commos in the place and we used to have a lot of employees there that had come from communist countries and they used to take on the branch of the communist party uh, head first. When everyone would knock off they'd go round of an evening before they went home they'd put up all these red rat stickers and they'd be put all around the workshops and they'd have all the various people's names on it that were commos. I remember one day uh, They had me out driving the Traversa. We were just waiting on the next carriage move and one of the guys had just come back from Russia 
and uh, we had a guy, Stevens, that used to uh, drive the tractor. They used to pull the cars on and off the traverser, and he was a, a hothead. And this little old commo come round, he was a car builder, he'd come round in his apron and that, and he had all these photos he'd brought back from over Russia. And he showed one of these women working on the tram lines in the street and the driver of the tractor, he flew off the bloody deep end. You think, I'm going to have my bloody wife out there at repairing tram lines? you got another bloody thing coming. In New Music Up Late tonight, that's an excerpt from uh, a recent work that our artist tonight has been working on. It's called Ghost Train and it focuses on uh, a major space in inner city Sydney which has recently been redeveloped and that is Carriage Works. And I'd like to introduce you now to that artist, Nigel Hellier. Nigel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. I think it's somewhat telling that you've actually been able to let yourself in to our interview tonight because you've still got your ABC pass from from working on this residency. Yeah, sure. It was basically over the last six months as a radiophonic uh, fellow for ABC, which is a, a fantastic opportunity. You have seen you in the, the mid-distance many, many a time, ducking down corridors and so on. I think uh, we've got plenty to talk about about your work because it brings up so many different ideas. But I think that first up, a way into that is by talking about this this project. Uh, perhaps you can begin by setting the scene and telling us a bit about carriage works and what particularly caught your imagination. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I started off thinking that uh, working on a site like that, which was, I mean, a massive site of employment in, in, uh, in Sydney... Um, probably one of the largest in Australia in in the 19th century, would there would be uh, really a place of uh, full of memories, redolent with memories. Um, but strangely enough, I think the more I got into it, I realised it was more about um, amnesia and how easy it is to forget, um, and how how quickly um, sort of cultural information, a bit like family histories, can disappear. I mean, literally within the space of a generation. Um, and it was actually in some ways quite difficult to to reconstruct, as it were, the life of a place. And um, I guess with the background of, um, you know, what, what heritage is yeah, and, and how cities um, can lose that heritage so quickly. So what we're talking about here, uh, for those who haven't visited the site, is it's now called Carriage Works. It's a major art space. Uh, but of course, this is a former site of railway workshops, uh, and as you say, a major source of uh, employment over the years. Yeah, that's correct, and it was also, uh, in a sense, a, a major, major source of the political life of of Sydney and the union movement and premiers and prime ministers. So it played an incredibly important role in forming a kind of Australian identity in a political sense. What was what was your basic starting point? I mean, was it actually visiting? The site itself, or yeah, I mean that in some ways is is almost a hollow experience um, because I think that's where you kind of get into um, this kind of conflict with what is heritage. Um, the standard approach is is a rather lazy approach by uh, by cities. Is oh well, we'll save the material envelope of the building, the bricks and mortar, and that's really enough. Or we'll you know we'll. Uh, rehabilitate a row of, of of 18th century houses or something like that um, but of course really the the actual stuff of history stuff of memory doesn't really reside in bricks and mortar it resides in the human presence and the use of it so when you first go there 
um, I mean, it's it's quite a nice uh, refurbishment, and the the current usage is is quite positive. It's an art space, and so on and so forth. Um, but one has no no sense of history, and no sense of what happened there, no sense of the lives that that kind of played out there day by day. Well, certainly very cleaned up history, if nothing else. I mean, it looks incredibly uh, clean and uh, post-industrial now. Sure. And it's interesting uh, kind of looking at um, audience reactions, uh, especially on the odd occasion that the entire building gets opened up for, say, a performance. Um, people wandering around with their heads cocked, kind of looking at beams and, and, and the sort of patina of age, um, quite a gog. And it kind of struck me that probably none of those people had ever been in a factory I mean, you know, the, the kind of art scene, most of those people don't don't work in factories, you know. Um, I've never really had an industrial experience, uh, which can actually be hell on earth, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell us about some of the people that you actually spoke to, because you've, you've done these uh, this five-part, five stations, if you like, of carriage work, speaking to ex-railway workers. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a mix of... of um, kind of tracking down ex-railway workers, um, but also talking to people who are kind of historians, academics, and in fact the architects, things like that. Um, And yeah, it was very interesting talking to some of the old guys because there was a lot of detail in there that, I mean, you just don't don't imagine is going to surface. And um, also, uh, it seems that the, the whole area of railways and transport does attract people who are into minutiae, you know, mm. and who can remember incredible details and conversations from 50 years ago and are quite obsessed with it. Well, you've got the train spotting it, notion. Yeah. It's the same scene, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like the firemen who like, like setting fires to things. I mean, um, they're, they're all kind of obsessives in that sense. One, one thing that I find interesting when conceiving of these kind of oral documentaries, if you, if you like, is at what point... Does it stop becoming, say, a documentary? And at what point does it start becoming more, a, say, a poetic or an artistic reflection? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, for me, it was personally interesting. And I, the, the, doing the project made me quite nervous. I, I mean, it was, wasn't until my final discussion with the executive producers that I kind of went, phew, they like it. <laughs> um, because I had no way of judging the quality of the work, in a sense, because um, the documentary or semi-documentary is not a form I'm familiar with. Um so my approach isn't so much I didn't think of it as a documentary I thought of it more as an audio portrait um, which for me uh, allowed me to kind of blur the the lines between something which was historically kind of accurate and with the intention of simply relaying information uh, or one which had a kind of critique or analysis to another one which which tried to take on the atmosphere of, of, of a place and some of the mystery and maybe even some of the fictions or the narratives of, of the site. So I hope I've kind of got that balance right. <laughs> well, I guess as part of the residency, the, the natural flow on for this project has been the programme Hindsight on ABC Radio National. And you've, uh, I guess, separated into these different stations, very cleverly titled. Can you just tell us a bit about what we're about to hear, which I believe is Station 4, now, it begins with a, a classic little piece of music. Ah, yes. Um, that's actually the railway waltz, which was commissioned for the um, the first opening of the first line between Sydney and Parramatta, and I think it was 1851. Could be wrong, but somewhere around there. And um, it actually, the piece actually opens with the instructions for making paper hats. 
because one of the things uh, one finds out fairly quickly is that the entire place was full of people wearing Sydney Morning Heralds or whatever, folded into paper hats. So a kind of almost semi-comic sort of scene. And um, and then the piece kind of kind of goes in fairly quickly into kind of issues of, of politics and um, it mentions Red Square and then talks about the 1917 strike. Um, so the... Um, one of the very strong impressions I got from working on um, on the Ghost Train project and on the Everly Rail Yards in general that there were two very strong messages that were suppressed or are not popular. And um, one is that the transport is a responsibility of the state and it should be provided by the state. And the other one is um, this notion of organised labour. And there are kind of um, really places uh, politicians don't seem to want to go at the moment. And uh, but the Everly, those rail yards, those were very, very significant. The Everly Railway Workshops, Sydney. The personal and the political. Yeah, I don't think they were very hard to make. Lay a sheet of the Sydney Morning Herald out in front of you, folded in half, bringing the top down to match the bottom. And most people, especially working out in, if you had to work out in the uh, sun and that, most of them wore it when they were doing the carriages. Fold the top left and top right corners down to the centre. They should touch vertically with a couple of inches of excess sticking out underneath the folds. Push out all the dust and that all the time and that. Fold up the bottom edge of the uppermost layer and press the crease flat. I suppose um, nine out of ten wore Flip over the hat and repeat by folding that edge up as well. Haven't you got a paper hat? Yeah. <laughs> Bring the right and left bottom points to touch. Turn the hat so that these corners point toward you. Set the hat on the table and press it flat into a diamond. Yeah. Mm. I, suppose, I suppose it was cheaper <laughs> than buying one. <laughs> you know, than that. Lift the top layer by the bottom point and bend it up to touch the top point. Probably had a, a brim that, that side right around. Turn the diamond over and repeat with the other side by bringing the bottom point up to the top. And it is ready to wear. Just like that. trouble is when the sparks used to fly, they'd set your hats on fire. So the speed of operation, blacksmithing was often and forging a very quick operation. The hotter the metal is, the easier it is to form and, and, and shape. So if it's a white heat, you can do literally anything with it. So people used to wear paper hats, but not so much under the forge. I didn't wear a hat there, but when I worked on real locomotives, you'd go under real locomotives, you'd go under the actual tap, hot dripping water dripping down from a boiler, a lot of people were frightened to go under a live locomotive with a fire above you, all that type of thing. A chappie from Malta used to make a reversible beret 
like a British green beret's hat. They're reversible, you get one side, the other side. They were two and sixpence each back then, 25 cents. And uh, when you go under the big garrets or the 36 class or the old tank locomotives, Sydney Suburban locomotives, to stop getting all the grease and oil in your hair, you, you wear a little beret on your head. Yes, it's exactly what you used to wear. Carriage workshops at Everly. I used to take cylinder phonographs into work. I took the fireside machine and the heavy home phonograph from 1901. The first time I took one in was playing it during morning tea in the store where we kept all the screws and tools and nuts and bolts. We had it set up on the workbench and all of a sudden the door opened, it was the deputy works manager. He said, my God, he said, I haven't heard anything like that since I was a little boy. He said, I'm going up to get my tea and uh, some biscuits and I'm coming back to hear it. He was back within about three minutes. He sat down and uh, the whistle went for us to go back to work. We still sat there and he still listened. He looked at his watch. He said, God, he says, you've got to get back to work. Come on quick. So that was the first time I took a machine in. And this was in the early 1960s right up through the 1970s. I took in Edison diamond disc dubbings of jazz orchestras, military bands and popular songs of the period. They all went down very well. There's one here called the Parade of the Wooden Soldiers, which was a top hit from about 1922. I've turned the machine on and I'm winding the motor. I'm changing the gear ratio from two to four minutes. Part of a, uh, a large work uh, composed and put together by my guest tonight, Nigel Hallier. The work is called Ghost Train and it focuses on the old Everly Railway workshops in inner city Sydney in the Redfern area, which now, of course, is the Carriage Works arts venue. And this work was put together as part of Nigel's six month uh, radio residency with ABC Audio Arts. Nigel's in tonight to not only talk about his works but also to introduce us to composers and artists who have influenced and interested him over the years. Nigel, that was a good piece to start with tonight, I think, because it does hit the nail on the head with your work, which is so often about spaces and audio geographies, ways of uh, walking through spaces and uh, finding different ways through them, I suppose. Mm, mm. What's behind this interest of audio environments, if you like? Well, I mean, I 
guess people who work in um, sound sculpture or sound arts come from two different places, really, or can come from two different places traditionally. One is the kind of conservatorium musical approach, and the other one, strangely enough, is uh, fine arts and sculpture in particular. And that was my background. I trained as a sculptor, and I found myself um, in the sort of late 70s at the Royal College of Art um, with a three-year thesis topic, which was hard and soft forms of installation, which kind of was a fancy way of saying, you know, sculptural and architectural objects and what in those days was really new media, you know, um, uh, i.e. I video and audio. And um, I've always been a bit of a videophobe, I suppose. And in fairly short order, I ended up with sculpture and audio and architecture. So it was always sound, space and, and sort of things. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really the trajectory that, I, trajectory that I came from. It's nice because these sort of uh, uh, projects, I mean, this is one example as with a few other projects where you've got a version for radio for people to disseminate through stereo speakers, but also an installation element. And I like the fact that it gives uh, the listener, the the person who experiences it, uh, a certain freedom. They can sort of curate their own way through. And I I imagine that that's also a big part of it for you. Yeah, because I I suppose... um the main characteristic of most of the installations I make or the kind of new media works that I make is that um, there may be many sound sources, parallel sound sources, um, geographically um, displaced networks of them, and that really um, generates a sort of performative situation where the uh, participant, or hardly want to call them the viewer, the auditor, Mm, if you like, literally has to navigate the space and makes choices about what they're listening to. And sometimes they can only listen to one thing at a time. Sometimes it's really the relative position. Um, but that creates the problem of how do you represent that um, on a, a website or in some other form, mm. um, which is basically, uh, I mean, radio is a stereo linear sort of medium and so um, my strategy had been for a long time is is in a sense to kind of repurpose or reuse some of the content loaded into a more narrative form which which would not replicate the work but reflect on upon the work well i think that will be demonstrated quite well later uh, with silent forest which will actually hear the radio version and then we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the installation side But as I mentioned a moment ago, you've also brought in pieces by other artists, and we're going to hear a few now in a little cluster, and I guess these follow a, follow the idea of spoken word and the voice in some way. Um, we're going to start off with two artists who I guess are using their voice either in a spoken way or an almost sung way, and this is Kurt Schwitters and Captain Beefheart. Now, can you tell us a bit about why you picked these, <laughs> these few tracks? Uh, like chalk and cheese, really. Yeah. Um, I think Coach Schwitters, I mean, because he is an artist known as a kind of, you know, a collagist, and uh, um, I suppose really it, I have a memory of, of being quite a young uh, student performing this in, the, uh, in an art centre in Brighton, um, Sussex University, actually, and um, taking, on, taking on this Coach Schwitters, this vocal um, poetry as a kind of concrete poetry for voice. And um, I think um, I've always been 
I've had kind of a very soft spot really for um, for narrative, and uh, so one thing I can't really escape in my work is, is sort of narrative. And I think Schwitter's um, it's quite abstract, but at the same time, it's um, it's extremely poetic. What about Captain Beefheart? This is uh, a few uh, decades on, but it seems almost like an audio link there. They're, they're not quite uh, a traditional song form, and it's not quite spoken word. Yeah. Um, again, personally, um, Beefheart would have come before Schwitters. Um, I, I, uh, for some reason, um, I was in a little group at grammar school that was fairly obsessed by uh, people like uh, Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa and Amusic and Cornelius Cardew. Um, I think we were rather precocious children, <laughs> and um, I, I again, I Beefheart's also a painter, and um, it's quite anarchic. And I, I just kind of very attracted to hit the rawness of that uh, that album uh, in particular, Trout uh, Mask Replica. Is it's kind of way before its time in sort of its grunge appeal. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a confounding experience. Uh, I remember reading a lot of artists quoting it as, a, as an inspiration and went out and bought it and I just couldn't make head nor tail of it at first. Yeah, it's fairly hard going. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the, uh, the, the final artist in, in that group is um, Paul de Marinas is um, actually a long-term personal friend of, of mine, although I am completely in awe of him um he's a, a a colleague who um makes new media works and he works in, in stanford university in california um i met him at the exploratorium museum in the late 80s we were i was working as an artist in residence there and paul um probably the best way to put it would be he's a kind of audio archaeologist or a technological archaeologist and um i think he made me really aware of the rate of change of uh, in technologies and the kind of massive development in the 19th and early 20th century in um, particularly the, record, um, the technologies of recording and transmission. And the, um, the co- consequence of that rapidity is that there are, there's, a, there's a kind of huge amount of, of very, very novel ideas that were simply abandoned, touched upon and thrown in a pile kind of a result of format wars and things like that and Paul has been very assiduous in going back and mining those spoil heaps if you like of <laughs> technological invention and has just c- c- comes up with amazing works and this um, um, this sample is of a very early uh, language um, record of 78 very kind of um, Decayed sort of uh, recording that he sort of reworked.
There's old green with her sewing machine. Where's the bobbin at? She's toting old green in a printed sack. The dust blows forward and the dust blows back. And the wind blows black through the sky. And the smokestack blows up in the sun's eye. What am I gonna die? A white flake riverboat just blew by. Bubbles pop big, and a lipstick Kleenex hung on a pointed forked twig. Reminds me of the Bobby girls. Never was my hobby girls. Handful of worms and a pole fishing. Cork bobbing like a hot red bulb. And a blue jay squeaks, his beak open an inch above a creek. Gone fishing for a week. Well, I put down my bush, and I took off my pants and felt free. The breeze blowing up me and up the canyon, far as I could see. It's night now, and the moon looks like a dandelion. It's black now, and the blackbird's feeding on rice, and his red wings look like diamonds and lice. I can hear the mice toes scampering, gophers rumbling in piled crater rock holes. One red bean stuck in the bottom of a tin bowl. Hot coffee from a crimped up can. Me and my girl named Bimbo. Limbo. Spam.
campagne, rampeur, long, bon, compagne, parfum, train, emprunt, lait, balle, volé, quelquefois, digne, génial, unifié. Ligne, montagne, vie, pierre, piano, bien, lion, travail, chant, ruche, fâché, jeu, beige, âgé, gibier, gymnaste, enjeu, huit, nuage, huit, huit, oui, oui, joie, loin, 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 soigné. Père, papa, apprendre, vite, beau, passé, pas, du, pas, pas, du. Dindon, coup, coupé, là, bois, guide, cœur, mot, maman, homme, note, ananas, fille, zoo, verre, verre, zoo, reçu, là, les hommes Three pieces there selected by our guest tonight in New Music Up Late, Nigel Hellier. Firstly, we heard the music of Kurt Witters from the Ur Sonata, performed by the artist himself. Then Captain Beefheart from Trout Mask Replica, The Dust Blows Forward. And finally, music by Paul de Marinus, Phonetica Frances, on the lovely music label. Uh, Nigel Hellier, it's uh, it's a pleasure, as I say, to have you in the studio tonight. I think those three pieces lead nicely into this next example of your work because, again, you've you've come up with a very novel way of uh, constructing text uh, in semi-automatic writing. Mm. Um, this is uh, actually a very personal piece. It's um, probably the only time in my life that I've really become very introspective and uh, sort of exercised some... Uh, um, uh, well, actually, a relationship breakup. I decided I needed to get over something, and um, so I, I kind of ended up writing an, an opera about, um, yeah, a kind of a shift in identity, if you like. And um, so the actual the actual narrative in the opera is about someone who's displayed. They fall down a wormhole in time, and they land in a foreign country in another time. And it's uh, this kind of kind of doppelganger. Out of out of context, loss of identity, and this attempt to regain it, and the um, 
it's really a conversation between a writer and a machine. Um, so uh, this kind of uh, plays on the idea of the surrealist automatic writing. It's called semi-automatic writing, which also has obviously military connotations. Mm, um, but um, I was using a very early um, text-generating software program on, I think, an old Apple II. You couldn't even print it out. I had to kind of <laughs> transcribe it as it went along. And it was basically a question-and-answer type of format. Um, and the machine um, builds up a kind of a library of, of keywords and then starts asking predictive questions. Um, and then uh, my strategy was to throw it off, uh, off balance all the time by including quotations from other people like uh, Lieder, German Lieder, and constructivist poetry were the two things. And um, so it, it does get quite surreal in, um, in, in, in a way. And I worked with a friend, Reese Reese, um, who had a, a Fairlight music system. Um, Reese has the advantage of not being able to read music or write music. So, and was. The advantage. <laughs> well, in this case, yeah, because. Yeah. In terms of the overall sound design, I just well, kind of bring in Prokofiev records and say, make it sound like this, or <laughs> do that, get rid of the get, get rid of the piano, <laughs> put this in, put that in, and um, so we ended up with this rather strange ersatz opera music. Well, it's more like operetta, um, um, with a kind of ersatz libretto, and presenting it on radio, um, Christopher Lawrence. Um, kind of is the MC, and the, this, you know the, there's applause and things like that. So it's presented as a debut performance and a live radio broadcast. So it's completely fake. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening to radio listeners around Australia and welcome to the stage of the Lilac Time Memorial Hall for this live performance of Semi-Automatic Writing, an opera for human and machine voices by Nigel Hillier and Rhys Rees. Performing it tonight is soprano soloist Anne Fish and baritone soloist Clive Birch with the Bon Gusto Symphony Orchestra making their first Australian tour from their base in Palermo, Italy under maestro Jimmy Smick. It's a beautiful winter night tonight, and that no doubt has drawn out the crowds. In fact, there was a bit of a skirmish at the box office just a few minutes ago when it turned out that the first two rows of the dress circle had been overbooked. But now it seems everybody has been accommodated and the audience is sitting and waiting for the performance to begin. It'll be of interest to both tonight's live audience and to our radio audience that the libretto was developed using an interactive computer text-generating program. The author's initial interests in the automatic writing techniques of the surrealist poets suggested a method in which the subconscious narrative or naturalistic speech is replaced by a dialogue with an artificial intelligence system. Here the author embraces serendipity and regards the machine as an oracle. Some brief applause there and murmurs of approval as composer Nigel Hellyer and Rhys Rees enter the auditorium. They're no doubt very happy with the way this evening's performance has shaped up and their relations with maestro Jimmy Smick and the Bon Gusto players have been very cordial despite the inevitable language difficulties. And now a reprise of the story so far. We are alone in the writer's room. Slowly, words are spoken. The writer feels like crap. 
the crap in the tape, in the play of the tape. We enter a fantasy conjured by this dark Beckett-like character, starkly positioned in a minimal set, lit frontally and in high relief. This neutral void is the place where the writer will weave the narrative. You can see it there in the middle of the stage. In the opening scene, we find the writer alone with a word processor. Here, any possibility of human contact is replaced by an inner dialogue. The narrative, which unwinds, is a complex allegory in which the protagonist simultaneously moves through a set of parallel worlds, a shadow in search of its schizophrenic body. The writer has returned from overseas, claiming to have been working in the Hall of the Mountain King. Somehow, on the homeward journey, a tragic event has occurred which results in the destruction of the writer's identity in the present. A translocation of the writer's physical being sets the scene in Leningrad during the year 1951. All the principal characters of the drama appear to have the ability to translocate themselves into this sombre post-war environment. None of them can speak Russian very well. In fact, most of them refuse to talk at all. And now, here on stage is soprano soloist Anne Fish and baritone Clive Birch, followed by maestro Jimmy Smick. This is semi-automatic writing. которая поет как птица, это не работница. Когда она продает свои песни, она работница и продавщица. Но это же певица, работающая на кого-то, давая концерты, чтобы заработать деньги, она хороший работник, потому что это приносит капитал.
I'm the machine. Are you the writer? Yes, I am the writer. Do I know you, writer? Have we spoken before? We have spoken together, yes. But perhaps you will find it difficult to recognize me. We shall continue our interview. So you are changed. Tell me a story about yourself. I feel like crap. No, that's not feeling like the substance. Well, not all the time. No, this is the crap in the tape, the play of the tape. I've become a dark Beckett person. I live in minimal surroundings. I am frontally lit in high relief. It is cold here, a freezer for human warmth. This is the writer's new place. I'm not afraid of the dark. 
was the opening moments of a radio opera as composed by Nigel Hellier. It's called Semi-Automatic Writing. It features singers from the Song Company as directed by Roland Peelman. And our very own Chris Lawrence there uh, introducing the work. You've heard it here in New Music Up Late on ABC Classic FM as we chat to sound artist Nigel Hellier not only about his work... Uh, but also the work of other artists who have inspired him, including this English artist who, like Nigel, has feet in both the music and visual art camps.
music by uh, another English-born composer, Gavin Bryars, the sinking of the Titanic, here in New Music Up Late on ABC Classic FM. Our guest tonight is sound artist Nigel Hellier, who recently completed a six-month residency at ABC, uh, focusing on the Carriage Works uh, venue in Sydney. We heard an excerpt of that earlier, Ghost Train. Nigel, we're going to hear more of your music in a moment, but firstly, another couple of pieces... These, I guess, have a, a political slant, beginning with negative land, following on with from scratch. And I know that politics and socio-political ideas feature heavily in your work too. Hmm. Um, I particularly like the um, the negative land um, piece. I've, I've kind of met the guys a few times, and um, I've actually done a fair bit of work around issues of copyright. And um, this album was produced as a as a kind of reaction to them being sued by the lawyers from U2 for, for a sample. And um, this track really says it all in the sense that the American national anthem was stolen from the English. You know, it's a drinking song. So what the hell, you know? And um, the, the um, From Scratch piece is um, basically... Uh, I really like the idea of there being a serious political critique about the um, atom testing in the Pacific, but transmitted or, or conveyed by a very, very beautiful musical form. I mean, not all, um, not all political critiques need to be strident and propagandist, in a sense, to carry the point across. And I think they do this very, very beautifully. So, um, so they're both kind of carrying a strong message in, in obviously kind of slightly different ways. And I don't think it's right. I think it's wrong. I think the government should step in and conscript it, make cards out, fingerprint everybody, picture them, and then keep it that way. Because this country is the only country that lets in all the refuse that they possibly can get along with the good people. If the people of the United States had better wake up before they have their whole little kitten caboodle go down the drain. Bread is a dollar and 19 cents a loaf. And the people in this this country are tired of paying for the other people that are coming in here and working. We feel sorry. We send money. We help them. But we don't want any more of those aliens, period. You guys stand back. How many we shooting off this? Boomer 1 to Boomer 2. Standing by on Q1. Two five-inch flag shells. Okay. From the first two. I one. Bombs bursting in air. The bombs bursting in air. Bombs. And the rocket's red glare. Bonk. I beg your pardon. Vulgar song. I beg your pardon. Call out a song. The well-known vulgar song. The bombs, bombs, bombs bursting in air. I beg your pardon. And the rockets, the rockets, the rockets, red glare. Vulgar song. Intense patriotism surging across our country. Carried the national anthem to new and different heights. Targeting. Bonk. All the way to the top of the music charts. Longer, longer song. Call out a song. I am an American. You're in specimen. Listen to my words. Bombs, rockets, bombs, rockets. You're a specimen collector. Before you even start, I am an American. I will escort you to the toilet to observe the passing of urine. All he tried to do is obfuscate the confuse. Bursting, bursting, bursting in air. The star spangled all the song. And the red glare. Sounds more like extreme noise. 
tail caught in a screen door. I beg your pardon. Are you dissatisfied with the song? Sounds more like extreme with its screen caught in a screen door. Well, you know it wasn't meant to be sung while sober. Uh, yeah. Screen door caught in a tail screen. I beg your pardon. Yeah. No, it uh, actually began as a drinking song. Oh yeah. Doesn't just hearing it make you wish you weren't sober? Oh yeah. Yes. Its author, Francis Scott Key, might have been charmed by topping the top 40, but was this really what he had in mind? The sweet, delicious coldness of the first bite of peppermint ice cream on the 4th of July. Or better yet, drink up. Was this really his song? Drink up. Well, you wish you weren't sober? Who is? Anacreon, a Greek poet who celebrated screen door. Drinking. Oh, I do. Drink up. To be free. Yes, the tune of our national anthem was lifted from an old English drinking song. Yeah? Drink up. Doesn't just hearing it make you wish you weren't sober? Who is? The people who wrote it certainly weren't. Drink up. Francis Scott Key wasn't either when he stole the tune. I bet I'd have liked him. Oh, you would have liked Anacreon even more. Anacreon. Anacreon. Oh, I do. Even more. Anacreon. Well, all the good things in life. Oh, you mean, uh... uh yes. Let's sing it again. Those are the new words, remember? Oh, so who knows the old ones? Ready, gentlemen? In pubs throughout England. To an acreon in hell. I am an American. Now we stand by the rails and we see the hair raising impression of how this projectile sounds as it passes by. The rocket's first And the bombs, red clay. The separation of the first stage at Burnham. Freedom to think. Intermittent sounds of the guidance rockets. Freedom to speak. The separation of the second stage. To pray, to read, to act, to pray, to criticize. Freedom to eat and sleep, to work and play without pain. Freedom to live one or two. be a holiday in your house of eternity. Be quiet. Worst negative act. Every American has at least one thing to be thankful for. A cheap shot. I'm just not true. But he still sold a flag and not a shirt. Good night.